0: I rejoice with those who said to me, let's go to the house of the Lord. Amen? amen? Amen. It's good to be with everyone today. Thank you for joining us online. Good to be with all those in the house today. And we rejoice, amen. We rejoice every time we gather together in Jesus' name, whether it be in joy, whether it be in sorrow, because he made a way back home for us. And he gave us the spirit to overcome. Any overcomers in here today? (laughs) Amen. We have some overcomers in here today. Ever hear the phrase, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God? Ever hear that phrase? It's an old phrase. It's been around for a while. It was first said by a man named William Carey in 1792 at a missions conference, just before he would set sail to Calcutta, India, and do some amazing things truly some amazing work in the name of the Lord in that part of the world. But his first years in Calcutta proved tragic and full of all kinds of hardship. In fact, within his first months of landing in Calcutta, India, his mission partner decided to go his own way and stole William Carey's and his family's first year's mission wage. So they were left with nothing. And then a few years later, after landing in India... His wife and his youngest son, Peter, passed away to illness. They faced unimaginable, unimaginable trials. Yet somehow in the face of great opposition, Carrie persevered and followed the movement of Jesus, calling him forward to remain obedient. After his five-year-old son, Peter, passed away, he wrote this in his diary. Still to this day, just... Blows my mind every time I read this. This is indeed the valley of the shadow of death to me, William Carey wrote. But I rejoice that I'm here, notwithstanding, and God is here, who not only can have compassion, but is able to save to the uttermost. Carey's joy amidst such agonizing pain bears witness to the white-hot mission that drove his vision forward following these tragedies. He endured and he ended up founding a college called Sarampore College, which is still in operation to this day, just outside Calcutta, preparing men and women in India for ministry and doing the work of Bible translation. During his decades in India, he, tra- he translated, William Carey translated the whole Bible into the six languages of India. And then in addition to that, translated the New Testament into 29 more dialects. He founded a church in Calcutta illegally that's still going to this very day and also a a mission society called the Baptist Missionary Society, which in 2022 has 30, or I'm sorry, has missionaries sent all around the world to 30 different nations. Ordinary obedience to an extraordinary God. You may not know this name, William Carey, and this man may not care much to you, and that's okay. But his ordinary obedience to an extraordinary God opened the scriptures to over a billion people. Ordinary obedience to an extraordinary God, that's what builds movement. That's what builds a movement. Common obedience, ordinary obedience. This man started life as a shoemaker and ended up doing something that he thought was just an ordinary series of steps. In fact, he would call hardship and tragedy but amounted to some extraordinary work hundreds of years later. The witness of Carrie's life raises the question for all of us, what is driving your life? What's what's got your vision? Because something is driving all of us, right? So what's driving you? And maybe a harder question to answer could be, do you even know? Do you even know what's driving you? This day, The Sunday before Easter, we traditionally call this day Palm Sunday. And on this day, men and women hailed Jesus as Lord and Savior, waving palm branches to him as he entered into Jerusalem for the final time, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means God save us. But no less than five days later, On a day that we commonly call Good Friday, some of those same voices crying out, Hosanna, would be the same voices crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And then later that day, he would die on an old Roman criminal's cross. Palm Sunday gives us an opportunity to reflect on what drives us. On what's got our vision. Because on this day, we see clearly what drives Jesus on this day. Over these last couple of weeks, we've been studying through select passages in the Gospel of Mark and letting him teach us how to move with Jesus, how to get into his rhythm. In the first chapter of Mark's Gospel, Jesus calls you to follow him, to go to the people for the people, act as a servant leader. Overcome sin, embody Christ's salvation in your life. Lead with character and humility. Live free and sober-minded. Admit your need. Take time outs to rest with Jesus. Show and tell the good news and stay aware of your emotional health. Jesus models each one of these plays, we called them, in Mark's first chapter. God moved to the people for the people in Christ Jesus in his second chapter, Mark shows how a group of friends modeled the characteristics of people who placed their trust in this movement. People who helped friends follow Jesus with determination, care, faith, love, and brotherhood. We saw that in just 12 short verses in the first, chat, in the, in the first part of Mark's second chapter. Now as we fast forward about three years to the end of Jesus' public ministry... Mark invites the reader to experience how Jesus moved on mission when the pressure mounted and the heat turned up. About a day or two before Jesus entered into Jerusalem, Mark records a few key moments that bring meaning to what was about to happen over the course of this next week. He begins in chapter 10, verse 32. And Mark says this, pay close attention to how Mark describes the scene. He says, they, meaning Jesus, the 12, and his closest followers, they were on their way up to Jerusalem, Mark tells us. With Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, Jesus said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. This was the third time in Mark's gospel that he predicted his own death. And Mark tells us, he describes the scene saying that the 12 were astonished but what they were witnessing in Jesus. And the others who followed behind him felt afraid, which begs the question, why did his closest 12 feel so differently than the others who were following behind? Mark gives us a clue in the first part of verse 32. He says this, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. Now it's a short clue, and it and it doesn't really say a whole lot, but part of what we get to know about Mark and the way that he wrote his gospel is that he gives subtle key words throughout his whole gospel that consistently point to the overarching themes that he's that he's presenting in his gospel. One of those themes being that Jesus is King; he's Messiah. And we see this theme introduced all the way back in the first chapter in Jesus' baptism. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. You may remember in that moment when God the Father said to Jesus, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. We learned together that these words not only inaugurated Jesus' ministry, but in these words, God the Father crowned Jesus as king. All the way, he refers to the, the, to the words that God would speak over the uh, kings of Israel. In Psalm 2-7, and now what we see here is God the Father saying these words to Jesus, crowning him king over God's kingdom in the world. Now fast forward about three years later in this moment here in Mark chapter 10, Mark tells us that Jesus and his followers are on their way up to Jerusalem, which quite literally from the city of Jericho, where they currently were, quite literally, it's a steep uphill climb. It's about 18 miles long, the road between these two cities. And that covers about 3,500 feet of elevation. So it's a steep climb. They're literally going up to Jerusalem. But I don't think that Mark wants us to get too concerned about the geographical layout of the land. As he wants to point us to the theme of Jesus as king and Messiah. Jesus isn't merely walking up a steep path but it seems that Mark wants us to know that Jesus is ascending to his throne where he will be given a crown, but not a gold crown that we would expect of a king or not a throne that's laid out with all different ornate jewels and and statues, but a throne that is his cross and a crown that is a crown of thorns. The picture of Jesus that Mark is painting in this particular scene, in Mark chapter 10, is of a king ascending to the heights to rule from his place of power. But not the kind of power that we would expect of a king in this world or the kind of power that so easily ensnares us and entangles us, but the kind of power that saves When Jesus ruled from the cross with his crown of thorns, he was demonstrating the kind of power that saves humanity. Not the kind of power that we saw in the kings of Israel who some would do right in God's eyes, others wouldn't do right in God's eyes. Or even in people that we see in positions of power today, rather Jesus is demonstrating what true power through love and sacrifice looks like and what it does and it saves The Apostle Paul wrote this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. No other king before him and no other king who would follow after Jesus could do justice and show love like Jesus did from his throne on the cross. Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Unlike other moments when Jesus walked with patience, amidst the crowd where he would sometimes be in the middle or maybe he would be in the back and other people would be leading or maybe they might be walking gently wherever they might be going. In this particular moment in Mark chapter 10, Jesus was leading from the front. He was walking resolutely as the king to go into the holy city to eventually ascend to his throne. And when the disciples saw this, they felt astonished by what they saw. And the others behind them felt afraid. Because they knew what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem. They knew that death awaited Jesus. But his disciples saw it. And they they got a glimpse of their king going to his throne. His actions even inspired James and John to ask this question. Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Which just affirms all the more the the picture that Mark wants to paint in in his gospel. James and John saw the moment for what it meant. But they asked the wrong question. They were following their own pride, not the mission. But over the next few days, James and John, along with the 12, as well as all of those who followed Jesus, would come to understand just what this kingdom represented and what power looks like in this kingdom. Power to save. Power demonstrated through love. Power shown in sacrifice. Mark continues in verse 46, saying this, As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, Jericho, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth walking through, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David being the name reserved for the Messiah. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. If you read through the whole Old Testament, believe it or not, you won't find a single healing of a blind person in the Old Testament. In fact, God's people, the nation of Israel, believed that only when the blind began to see would it be an indicator that the Messiah was in their midst. Isaiah, the prophet, wrote in his letter, in that day the deaf will hear words read from a book in the day of the Messiah. And the blind will see... Through the gloom and darkness, here on his way to the throne after rebuking James and John for asking such a prideful question. Blind Bartimaeus, a beggar on the side of a road, saw what James and John missed. They saw Jesus as the true king and servant Messiah for the world. As you study through Mark's gospel... You'll come to see that he likes to place two stories together that might seem like they oppose each other on the surface, but when you read them together, tell a larger story. And here in this particular moment, he tells of a blind beggar who sees what Jesus' closest disciples didn't. How he sees him as the Son of God, the Messiah King, as Jesus' followers. The events surrounding Palm Sunday raise the question for us. What drives our vision? What's got our attention? Is, 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 it, our, is it our pride, which is a constant question I'm asking of myself. Is, it, is, it just, is, this, is this situation or is this issue just more about me? Or is it our desire, my desire to truly see Jesus and receive his power to save? Mark tells us that Jesus eventually reached Jerusalem, beginning in Mark chapter 11. And he tells us that Jesus rode on a colt or a young donkey as his mighty steed, not some great stallion, but on a donkey, fulfilling what God declared through his prophet Zechariah Rejoice, O people of Zion, Zion being the very mountain upon which Jerusalem sits. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. During the week that followed his entry into the city, Jesus cleared the temple, showing that he himself is the forgiveness of sins. And the very one who mediates between God and his people, not the priest, but Jesus himself. He gave the greatest commandment and shared the last supper with his disciples in a matter of days. From that moment, he would be betrayed, mocked, spat upon, beaten, and killed to offer his life as a pleasing and holy sacrifice to satisfy the death that every single one of us deserve. He took our sin upon himself, and he faced our consequence. Yet perhaps most surprising of all, most surprising of all, is what the author of Hebrews wrote, saying, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God for the joy set before him. That Jesus not only endured these things, faced these hardships, endured the pain, experienced the ridicule, but he did so with a heart filled with joy. With joy because on the other side of the cross meant friendship with us forever. meant that he would get to experience as God incarnate the kind of relationship that God desired from the very beginning. With each and every single one of us. So the hours of agony were worth every second for the joy of our salvation that Jesus offered to us on the cross. Love drove his passion. Love drove his passion. What drives you? What, what drives you? What's got your vision? What's got your heart's attention? What do you find your hands doing? What, what do you, where do you find your feet walking? What's got your attention? With one week left until Easter, how might we help others find and follow the one who endured the cross for the joy of their salvation? Because not only did did Jesus hang on the cross for the joy of ours, he also did it for those not yet here. He also did it for those who right now might seem so far from him. But even still, Jesus sees them and finds joy for making a way back home for each and every single one of them and then charges us to go about being his hands and feet to help bring them within range. Who are your seven? Who are your seven? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been praying through our seven. And if you haven't received this card, then let me encourage you to find it. You can download this online for those of you following with us online. Let me encourage you to to pray through your seven who need your attention, your voice, who need your steps walking to them to bring them within range, to hear of what Jesus did for them. Have you offered an invitation? Let's not waver or falter on this. Let's see these seven come to Easter Sunday here with us to experience the good news that we celebrate together. Here at Christ's Journey, we call this living on the edge together. And we invite every person to move on mission with Jesus, to advance his kingdom in the world, in Miami, by living On the edge. This means moving with Jesus in evangelism, sharing his good news, discipleship, learning his way. Disciple simply means learner. And so we open God's word together, we learn, and then we let that learning translate into action. Generosity, offering our time, talents, and treasure. And we live as empowered men and women, leading others to find and follow him. Living on the edge leads to the fullest expression of abundant life that Jesus promised to each and every single person who believes and places their trust in him. A few weeks ago, I finished the ESPN Plus series, Man in the Arena, about Tom Brady. I know that, that name is kind of like a curse word here in Miami. And so I, I don't say it lightly. Um, it's a good documentary, although you will have to fast forward a couple of parts where they're laying the herd on the dolphins. But I, uh, it's a good documentary nonetheless. And, and I want to encourage all of you to take a look at it because of the life-on-life nature of what we see in this documentary. And in this, in episode three in particular, Brady and his former teammates, Teddy Bursky and Mike Vrabel, talk about the key to their success and they call it the Edge. In fact, they call themselves the Edgers, leading and inspiring the team to action and to achieve their mission. Brady said in the episode, you weren't held accountable to the coach, you weren't held accountable to the fans, you were held accountable to the guy sitting next to you every day, to the guy that you saw in the practice room, to the guy that you saw in the field. Together, these guys pushed and provoked their team to do more than they ever thought or imagined that they could do on their own to eventually achieve their greatest mission endeavor, which was to win the Super Bowl. In fact, Mike Vrabel, uh, who's now the head coach of the Tennessee Titans, would often say to his teammates, oh, you're, you're still not putting, still not doing the extra, huh? Still not putting in the extra? I'm getting the edge on you today. Teddy Bruschi said, it takes guts to play like that. It takes guts to play the game with that kind of edge constantly, but more than that, it takes relationships. It takes courage to play like that. Brady said it was with joy and enthusiasm of living on the edge that carried them to victory and to ultimately win the Super Bowl that season. He said we ignored the noise. We were the edgers. We were going to prove to everyone that we did have the edge. We outworked you, we outcompeted you, and when the chance came, we outwilled you. And I thought to myself as I was watching this episode in particular, I thought to myself, man, am I, what am I watching right now? Am I watching a football documentary? Or am I, am I listening to a vision for how the church ought to live in this world? I mean, listen to the words they used. Accountability, relationship, courage, joy, enthusiasm. And together they outwilled their opponent to victory? Jesus lived on the edge long before Tom Brady ever talked about living on the edge. In fact, Mark shows us a man, a leader, and a God. A man, a leader, and a God who inspired and challenged his team to live on the edge. And lead the church to become edgers in this world. Edgers who are provoking and spurring one another on. Today we stand in a long line of edgers who made bold risks to advance God's kingdom on mission in this world. Early church leaders like Paul and Timothy, great men of the faith, great women of the faith too. Women like Phoebe, about whom Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Rome, welcome her in the Lord as one who is worthy of honor among God's people. Countless other men and women of the faith. Over two millennia, in fact, of men and women living in the faith, rising up when their generation called for it, to spur the church on, to believe, and to simply show ordinary obedience to an extraordinary God. Men like William Carey. Men like our own pastor great women of the faith sitting right here in this room who've risen up time and time again to spur each other on. Let's be edgers for this generation, for this moment in our city's history. Let's be edgers and live on the edge, spurring one another on toward love and good deeds. The author of Hebrews told us to live as edgers long before this this word ever came into fashion. The author of Hebrews implored the church to stir it up and provoke one another toward love and doing good in the world. Living on the edge takes guts, takes commitment. And like Bruschi said, it takes relationship and trust. Being edgers takes love. Being edgers means that we're a church enjoying one another, living as friends together. Having some fun together. Oh, you invited seven. I invited eight. Gently spurring each other on to do more than we could have ever thought or imagined we could do on our own. And it takes trust because when I speak that into you or when you speak that into me, I'm showing you love and believing that there's more in you than you might be able to see in yourself. This is what it means to be edgers together. These aren't passive attributes. The church isn't a social club. It's a force to be reckoned with in this world. And in our city, it's the living hands and feet of Jesus, alive and active in the world, with an opponent who is actively seeking to steal, kill, and destroy from us, by the way. So when I listen to interviews like Brady's, I think to myself, man, this is our calling. This is our mission. This isn't... This is so much more than football. This is, this is what it means to live together as the church. And it was ours before anyone else called it theirs. We have the greatest mission in the world and follow a leader who is already the one in the victory. So our lives are secure and we have nothing to fear. In fact, one theologian said, what a scared world needs is a fearless church. A fearless church. What makes a church fearless? When we trust in a fearless Jesus. And his people take steps in faith to show that we're not tethered to this world. That our lives belong in another place. They belong to in a holy city where one day we will all be redeemed and restored and reconciled with our Heavenly Father with nothing, no sin, nothing in our way. So friends, are you on the move? Are you living on the edge with your fearless king? Let's move together. Let's live on the edge together. Let's be edgers together. And let's do so in two ways this week. First, let's open our eyes to see. Open your eyes to see. We are blind like Bartimaeus. So blind. I've got so many blind spots in my life. So many. No one sees everything all the time. So are you blind enough to recognize your own need? To ask God's help to see or you see everything just fine. Because depending on how you answer that will determine just what you are truly able to see. Allow Jesus to open your eyes, to see Jesus on the move, and join him there. To see others in the way Jesus sees them. To see what areas of your life need Jesus' healing touch. And to see God's word anew. Let's study it together. Memorize it. Let's walk fresh in it. And take it to heart. And then second, lay down your cloak. On the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, Mark tells us that people laid down their cloaks on the ground for Jesus to ride over on his donkey to show reverence to the king. He loves you now. Not the you that you want to be six months from now or when you feel like you've got everything together. He loves you right now and desires for you to turn to him. So lay down your cloak, offer your life, turn to him, and then follow his lead. This week, one week left, who are your seven? Who needs you this week? Who needs your presence? And as we walk forth fearlessly this week, inviting those to take their next steps with us, And being a part of our experience next week on Easter, let's expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Lord Jesus, we thank you for going all the way for us. Jesus, we thank you for walking up that steep road to Jerusalem. Entering into those gates and ascending to your throne, the cross. Wearing those thorns and ruling and demonstrating the greatest power this world has ever seen. God, thank you for showing your love to us. For saving us. For giving us this gift of the church. And for moving us forward with you. Lord, I pray for every heart in this room to leave this place today feeling new and invigorated and inspired, to keep walking with you, to keep moving with you, even when the challenges rise, even when it feels lonely. Lord, I pray that your spirit would remind us that you are always with us, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. You will remain by our side no matter what. And you will make a way where there seems to be no way to come back into relationship with you and to help others do the same. Lord, thank you for leading. Thank you for the resoluteness that you took upon yourself, for taking our sin and our shame upon yourself so that we might live and might re-engage back into relationship with you. Lord, we love you, and we make this prayer in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.